are going to be joined now momentarily by Ansel Linder and CK Snarks for a new episode of FedWatch. Gentlemen, I will let you take it away. What's up, y'all? We're back. We got a lot to talk about, a lot of Fed talk to talk about, and uh, we have a guest coming on next week. Ansel, why don't you give us a preview? Yeah, what's up, guys? I'm really excited for our guest next week, Tom Luongo. He's going to be a repeat guest. Uh, he has been writing a ton of stuff on currencies like the Japanese yen, the Chinese yuan, the euro, the dollar, all that, all the the, the legacy fiat stuff, uh, which is right in our wheelhouse for FedWatch. Uh, so we're going to have him back on the show next week and get into some really exciting stuff. But yes, this week is a big show. We had the 50 basis point hike from the Fed this week, as well as coming up tomorrow is the CPI for April. So we wanted to give a quick preview of that and then end up the show with some Bitcoin talk like Bitcoin cycles uh, where, you know, oversold, overbought conditions, things like that. All right, let's get right into the, the Fed updates. 50 basis point hike. Markets are in chaos. Bitcoin, huge crash in price just yesterday. A little bit of a rebound today. It's Tuesday. So uh, for the podcast listeners, uh, this will be yesterday, but Ansel. All right. So this is from my email newsletter that comes out every Friday over at bitcoinandmarkets.com. I wrote a little segment on Fed rate hikes and what has that looked like in the past for the stock market, for gold and for Bitcoin you know, the QE and QT cycles. So this first chart is the first two rate hikes. And we are kind of supposed to believe that these rate hikes are bearish for stocks, but you can see the first rate hike in March actually led to a brief rally, almost back up to all-time highs. And the second one was not really that pivotal. The price was already falling. Uh, and it kind of seems like perhaps today, uh, the fall has lost a little bit of steam. So um, I, by this chart, I was just pointing out that it is not all that pivotal. Yep, you're up. Okay, so this is the gold chart. And what I did here was just plotted QE, uh, the, this recent era of QE starting back in 20, uh, 2008. Uh, and you can see that all the way over on the left, left price was already going up 200, 300% prior to QE ever starting. Then QE started and the trend just continued. It didn't like suit, you know, really change much of anything. Then right in the middle of QE at full blast is when gold peaked in 2011 and crashed all the way from 1900 down to 1200. Then finally QE ended, and we're supposed to believe that that is, you know, uh, deflationary, not as inflationary, not as stimulatory, but gold actually bottomed and started coming back up. Um, it broke out before QE restarted in 2019. And then what with QE at full blast, gold actually peaked and fell again during this last round of QE. So, I mean, looking at this chart, if you were to take the arrows away, I don't think anybody could point to when QE really started and ended, when QT started and ended. So um, I thought it was very interesting. Now, the last chart I have, chart uh, slide number three, is of Bitcoin in this era. Now we don't have a, obviously a Bitcoin price that goes all the way back to uh, 2008 when you know great financial crisis and QE started, but uh, we do have it from when QE ended in 2014. I believe it was November, December 2014. That's right at the bottom of that bear market. I call this the Mt. Gox bear market, but it was at the bottom of the Mt. Gox bear market. And during the time where there was no QE, that's when 
we had the 2017 rally, the price rallied 6,000%. Then QT started uh, pretty much right at the top. If you're going to point to any moment on any of these charts that looks like a pivot that has to do with QE or QT, um, it would be this moment in December of 2017. But if you measure out for that life of that QT policy, uh, quantitative tightening policy from the Fed, the price only dropped, Bitcoin price only dropped 28%. So that's not like a fundamental change that happens all the time in Bitcoin. Um, yeah, and so I just wanted to point out that these things aren't as black and white as a lot of people say, that just because we're in a quantitative tightening cycle right now, or you know, QE has ended, there has been quote unquote stimulus removed from the market. Bitcoin has traditionally performed very well during those times. So that's all, all I have for this recent last week of Fed news. What do you got, Christian? I guess, Anto, just to kind of build on that and, and ask you a follow on is like, what is your explanation or what is your kind of counter narrative, right? You know, obviously we've talked a lot about the main tool that the Fed and other central bankers have is actually expectation management more than they actually have the dials to the economy, which they want you to believe, right? Um, and, you know, kind of what you're showing here is, you know, their dials don't necessarily have the effect on the assets, you know, the way that the narrative says. So what's, what's your counter narrative? My counter narrative is the market does what the market is going to do. Uh, that the Fed really doesn't play a part. They just build this mythology in your brain to think that they're important. They always follow, they're always data-driven. And so uh, all those charts that I just showed, it's very hard to pick out any you know, influence of Fed policy. So yeah, I think that the market just does what the market's going to do. And you, you shouldn't waste time trying to predict what the Fed's going to do. You should just uh, look at other indicators like yield curves, uh, interest rates, uh, prices of commodities and things like that to see what's going to happen in the future. So specifically, what indicators are you most interested in right now? Uh, commodities prices and yield curves, I think. So I watch the oil price uh, a lot because I think that it is one, it's very volatile compared to other types of um, prices that you can look at like yield curves and stuff. But um you know, I, I expect demand to fall. GDP is already down. So I expect uh, oil demand to fall faster than oil supply at this point. And so I expect the oil price to come down. And if the oil price does come down, then, you know, I can say, well, that's at least reinforcing my hypothesis here on that. Um, yield curves, we had an inversion in the yield curve that we talked about on the show um, about six weeks ago now, I think. Uh, that's a huge indicator that there is, the market is perceiving or pricing in a recession pretty much and that flashed about six weeks ago so really the, those are the big types of indicators i look at and i don't really care about what powell says or what people think is there going to be a policy error by the fed like the, these are just bureauc talking heads they're not really in charge of the economy okay before we move over to cpi last question ansel if we don't care about what powell says then why do we pay attention to what he says why do we care about what he says on this show why do we dissect that well, well, we dissect it one to see if it if we're wrong. You know, we're we're questioning our assumptions, and we obviously could be very wrong. Uh, most people think that uh, the euro dollar deflationary type hypothesis that we talk about a lot on the show here is wrong. So um, that 
we're examining the evidence and we're seeing where it leads us. We're following the evidence. And also um, the Fed does the same thing, right? We, we can confirm our hypotheses uh, experimentally or empirically uh, by what the Fed says. So I, if I say, oh, the Fed is going to make a pivot in the middle of the year and then the Fed makes a pivot, you know, that's some empirical evidence to support our stuff. So that's, that's why we are using the Fed. All right, let's jump into CPI. Okay, uh, so the news for CPI is that the Euro area came out with their April CPI, and it went up a one-tenth of 1%. So if you could bring up slide number four, this is just a screenshot of a recent article on this, uh, and you can see that it, it Euro area inflation went from 7.5% uh, or went up to 7.5% from 7.4%. But what I thought was really interesting is this month over month change. So their month over month change went from 2.5%, which is very, very high. If you think about that month over month and how, what that would be annualized, right? Um, down to 0.6%. And I've been talking on this show and, and in my newsletters and stuff about, I think CPI is going to slow or reverse. And so these are the things I'm, I'm looking at. Um, a slowing of the trend and a reversal of, of the trend in CPI. If you go to the next slide. So the forecast for the US CPI coming up this month is down from 8.5 last month to 8.1%. And core CPI is down to 6% from 6.5. So core is excluding energy and food. Um, also, I saw the month over month prediction could be as low as 0.1%. And that would be very, very low, almost in contraction, right? It's, it's the lowest it can be. So that, that's what I want people to look at, uh, fans of this show, you know, pay attention to that month over month number, and we should see this starting to come down and roll over. And what that tells me then empirically that demand is slowing. And Powell has said, that's what they're trying to do actually is destroy demand. So as demand is slowing, uh, faster than supply is shrinking, you know, we can have a drop in prices, even though overall our standard of living might be going down, prices can still fall. So um, that's what I have on CPI. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting, again, like how these things are kind of discorrelated from the the real economy, you know, they're used, they're, they're used as signals and mechanisms to kind of help drive data driven decisions. But then when you look in hindsight, there, there's a lot of disconnection. They're not that good of tools. And it's just going to be really interesting to see how long it takes for the masses to kind of give up on this, uh, I don't know, superstition, if you will, kind of like politically enforced superstitions around the economy and wake up to the reality that there is a real economy out there and, and it's driven by real market forces uh, I mean, I'm, I'm really hopeful that Bitcoin is a solution that kind of enforces that. I think Bitcoin is like the printing press. Um, it, it really does something similar to what the printing press did to the church and separating it from the state. I feel like Bitcoin kind of does that uh, in a very similar way. Great article on Bitcoin magazine that breaks that down. Maybe we can link it in the video and inside the, the show. But yeah, I mean, Ansel, uh, you've been pounding on this drum for a long time, but at the same time, you also do like to look at CPI. Um, you do find it to be one of the better measurements uh, in your analysis. Um, you know, I guess back to you, like anything you want to add there? Yeah. Well, I, before we take, I want to take a look at rents. Um, 
and break it down a little bit for people. But before we get there, the reason why I like CPI, um, I mean, I don't like it. Okay. I think that it has a lot of information for us. And if we are looking at it with the right hypothesis of the market, then CPI can give us a lot of information. But what it, you know, if you look at it from a 12 years or 14 years of QE, and CPI only very recently went above 2% or 3%. Like you have to match that data with your hypothesis and it doesn't match in that case. So um, I, I, that's why I like CPI because it does point out um, a lot of faulty reasoning out there. So yeah, uh, more about rents. So a lot of people, one of the most misunderstood um, sections of the CPI is rents. A lot of people say, Oh, they, they changed it in the 80s to, to be owner, what is it, uh, owner equivalent rent because they want to hide inflation. So I just wanted to describe a little bit why they do that, uh, because I think rent is going to be one of the higher things on this CPI print. And a lot of people are going to be like, oh, yeah, they're still hiding it. Rent's so much higher. But if you think about this, like back in the 80s, what they did was they separated um, the price of a home from your monthly bill and the, the cost for a certain standard of living, because you only buy a house once. Let's say you bought a house 10 months ago, or one at a time usually to live in it, right? So if you uh, bought a house 10 years ago at a fixed rate mortgage, you're still paying that fixed rate. And it doesn't necessarily move around a lot with the uh, other prices in the economy. So what they did is they switched over to this uh, owner equivalent rent, that was supposed to separate a kind of an investment um, return from a actual, what is the cost of housing? And uh, the, the reason why that lags a lot is because of the time frame of rents, right? Like they don't say everybody's rent is gonna be renewed on this month. And so look at the price, it went way up. No, it's only like every month you see one 12th of the population is changing their, their uh, cost of living according to rents, right? It's a rolling thing. You don't re-sign your, your lease every month. So um, that's why rents take a long time to uh, get into the CPI and why we could see actually right now um, some of these other prices dropping like uh, gasoline and oil dropped 5% in April, but rents could be taking up that a little bit. So we can see rents becoming more important while energy drops. Um, yeah, I just wanted to break that down for people. Any thoughts on that, Christian? Uh, you know, I, I don't think about CPI that much, uh, so I, I kind of rely on you to to pull the signal out of of that. But yeah, I mean, generally speaking, I think it's it's important. The, the important thing about CPI is that it's open source, so maybe the decision making uh, we can't control that, but they actually show what their decisions are. Whereas, like some of these other things that tell you what you want to hear, they're not open source, so. That's that's kind of uh, where CPI is useful, but beyond that, I think we live in a, an economic hurricane. It, even the best economists can't pull signal out of the current situation because it's absolutely ridiculous. Uh, and this is why we need Bitcoin. So that's why we're educating people about Bitcoin. That's why we talk about uh, the ridiculousness of this economic situation. And you know, it's like we're using primi a primitive compass in in the uh, in the economy when we're talking about CPI you know, I guess it's better than nothing. Yeah. And to bring it full circle into Bitcoin. Um, 
So I think that as CPI falls and as the it becomes more and more obvious that we're in recession, because remember Q1 GDP was already negative. As that happens, the Fed is going to have to pivot. And all the people that believe in this mythology of the Fed, they're going to think, wow, the Fed is pausing or, or even dropping rates now. And so it's, it's I think this Fed, this coming Fed pivot, which could happen, you know, as about September meeting, that's what I'm kind of predicting about the September meeting to see a Fed pivot, that could be extremely explosive for the price of Bitcoin, and even for the price of stocks and, and other things. I love that tweet. No, I love that tweet. Uh, and you know, that's something, you know, you've kind of been forecasting is that no matter what, they're not going to be able to keep this up for long. Uh, and and there's going to be a pivot. Your tweet specifically was that this is going to be a um, generational wealth type buying opportunity when the Fed does pivot. Do you want to talk a little bit more about uh, like forecasting that out a little bit more? You know, personally for me, you know, I'm just taking as much dry powder as possible and and trying to responsibly allocate to Bitcoin. Uh, but you know that that kind of an outcome I, I think is likely and uh, obviously. Uh, you know, while people are crying bear market, that would actually shift things a lot, right? Yeah. So one of the overriding things is my theory of going forward, the U.S. is going to benefit while other countries are going to um, kind of fall, fall back. So China is kind of at the end of their growth story. Uh, Europe is going to have a couple decades of problems, you know, with people exiting the, the European Union. NATO probably going away. There is obviously hostile activity on their borders. And so I, uh, I see the growth story in Europe and China falling down where I see all this capital flooding into the US. So I, I have a, a very bullish vantage uh, or uh, opinion of the future of the US stock market and US dollar denominated assets in general. And Bitcoin is part of that story. So where is all this capital going to flee? Well, it's going to flee uh, to the U.S. dollar-denominated assets and Bitcoin, as well as where is a lot of the industry now for Bitcoin? Where is a lot of the growth in the mining sector? Where is a lot of the growth in the trading sector? It's Most of it is happening in the United States. And so what's good for the United States is good for, the, the, uh, for Bitcoin at this point. So all, all of these things put together, um, I see... Oh, and then adding on that, on top of that, now the mythology, everyone is thinking the Fed is going to tighten, tighten, tighten. I've seen some predictions talking about they won't stop until they get to 8% or something. I mean, this is just absolutely ridiculous. They're going to be forced to uh, crash all of those predictions and reverse. And when they do that, every, everybody that does believe in the mythology of the Fed will get instantly bullish. So if you put together all of these factors, um, you're looking at a massive, massive shift and reversal coming middle of this year or towards the end of this year. What do you think about that? Yeah, I know Q wants to jump in. Jump, what do you think about this, Q? I mean, I'm very cautious about what the Fed is doing. Like, while this most recent 50 basis point hike was sort of baked into the market sentiment like we saw the market react positively to its expect to its expected uh rate hike but in turn we've just seen a full-blown collapse as a result now historically speaking 
that is expected. Whenever we've seen a 50 basis points hike, the two weeks before and the two weeks after, the markets are in turmoil. And we saw that for the first two weeks. We're now what, almost one whole week removed and the market seems to have no floor in sight. And so I'm kind of curious where your head is as far as these rate hikes and the way the market was expecting this and still reacting so negatively. Um, what happens in a scenario where the Fed is getting more aggressive and the rate hikes are closer to 100 basis points versus what the market is sort of pricing in? Well, I don't think the market was that negatively, uh, you know, over the last couple of days, I don't think it was that bad. Um, there are, you know, people out there that will pull like, oh, this what this day ranks so much in the history of the stock market and yada, yada, yada. But if you look at the chart, like the entire move down so far, I think it's only like 15%. And that is not even bear market territory so far from the highs at the beginning of the year. So I don't think that this is extremely bearish, but everybody is talking that way. And we, we've seen stories like just this morning, I saw a headline about David Tepper. He's a big billionaire hedge fund manager or something. And he was saying that he's now closing all, his, all of his shorts. He thinks that this is kind of the end of this uh, mini bear market that we've seen. Neil Kashkari from the Fed, he's the president of the Minneapolis Fed. And he said that he's countering some of the narratives of these ultra hawkish members of the Fed and saying he thinks 2% is as high as it's going to go. So we're starting to see a little bit of influential people at least, and who knows if, how honest they're being if they're just trying to build the narrative, but we have to take that into consideration that they are telling the truth, that they are acting in good faith, and that this could be the bottom. Um, and that fits with a lot of my other predictions. So um, yeah, we could see another 10% sell off in the markets in Bitcoin, specifically, um, I, I was not expecting it to get this low. I don't see where all this liquid selling is happening uh, or where it's coming from. So yeah, it could drop another uh, 10, 15%. But if we go back to 2021, that was one of my other charts here that we have. If, uh, so in, in the history of Bitcoin, we have all these drawdowns. Um, and in 2012, the drawdown was 90%. In 2015, the drawdown was 80%. Then we had a shorter 80% drawdown in 2018. And then since then, it's been less and less. So 70% drawdown, 55% drawdown. Now we're, we just hit a 50% drawdown. And I don't see it really crashing all the way down to be a total of like an 80% drawdown. I don't see where those liquid Bitcoins are going to come from to sell. So um, I think that this is right around the bottom for Bitcoin. So all of the these things put together kind of form my thesis. The chart is on the screen, by the way, Ansel. And yeah, I mean, again, I uh, I, I definitely subscribe a lot to the thesis. So um, it is kind of interesting to see it um, across, you know, multiple layers, you know, with the Bitcoin chart, the gold chart, the on-chain chart, you know, all of that layering together. That's another reason why, you know, I think this show is special, FedWatch, because we hit on this thing, these things last week. We talked about all of the foreign central banks and what they're doing. I'd be interested to chime in a little bit about China before we actually get into Bitcoin price and that kind of thing concretely, just because you just see the most wild videos coming out of China, the most wild videos, uh, totalitarianism. You know, on this show, we talked about, you know, the the uh, Warren Buffetts and the Charlie Mungers and the Ray Dalios who are praising China's response we're quick, going to quickly have egg on their face because freedom just works better. Um, and 
you know, I think that we're seeing that right now. Ansel, do you want to comment at all a little bit about uh, what we're seeing out of China and kind of just the insaneness that's happening in, uh, is it Shanghai and just brutality and the fact that honestly, these videos are getting on the internet so consistently, they do not look fake. Like they look pretty authentic at this point. And we're seeing very authentic, you know, accounts of this, you know, it's either the most insane psyop in history, or it's actually authentic, but it really is uh, an insane level of crackdown that we're seeing in areas of China. Yeah, I think the lockdowns have continued to get worse. Uh, I haven't looked in the last couple of days. We did an update last week on that, but the, the lockdowns continue to get worse, um, spreading to major population and political centers like Beijing. So um, I think the economy will continue to slide over there. And China's a, a unique place. And I'm no expert in China, but I have, you know, over the last 20 years, I've done, done quite a bit of reading on, on their history and things like that. And they have they have almost like a magical belief about things. So they have like the mandate of heaven. And if they're, if the mandate of heaven is withdrawn from the ruler, then there's going to be things like floods. There's going to be things like economic collapse and stuff like that. And that just reinforces the people's belief that they need to topple that leader. Um, I saw a silly video this morning about uh, these, what is it called? The knife credit mans, knife credit men over there in China. So they, they appear before it's like some mythical person that sells knives, but they don't take payments. They say, I'll be back in one year after this. And then they make some prediction, like after the floods, I'll be back after the floods to collect my payment. And then it floods, right? Like this is a uh, kind of built into their culture a little bit, at least um, these kind of mythical beliefs. And uh, so if you have lockdowns, you have bad economics, um, you know, things aren't going the best with Taiwan and, uh, you know, they, they haven't been able to retake Taiwan. So it is almost like, uh, there's a lot of these cards falling for the CCP and they have a lot of trouble ahead of them. Again, uh, kind of, I feel like we, we definitely bring a wide view on what's happening, but a lot of the narratives that we say here are, um, against, you know, they're kind of counter narratives to what's the, the mainstream counter narrative, <laughs> you know, there's like the mainstream narrative and then there's the mainstream counter narrative. And then it's what we talk about yeah. here on FedWatch and the mainstream counter narrative has been very pro China in terms of China is going to do all these things. The Belt and Road Initiative is going to be this successful. And it's, it is really interesting to, you know, kind of see you pick that apart and, and talk about, you know, why China has been a beneficiary of credit expansion and if that changes how that affects them. Um, and again, just freedom works, guys. That, I think that's a key thing here that we need to like understand is like freedom actually is the best way to organize. Um, so when you have totalitarianism, uh, at some point, you know, you make pretty obviously glaring mistakes, and then you typically don't react well to them. And then you keep doubling down or you continue to make mistakes, and then it, things fall apart. So uh, it would be pretty astonishing to see like a, a China that is under turmoil or China that has civil unrest just because it seems as though, you know, the people there have been uh, kind of uh, put into this system and complied so much to this point. But um, yeah, it, it is uh, it is something that we're going to continue to monitor. Ansel, do you want to talk well, about Bitcoin? Like obviously yesterday, things uh, <laughs> got pretty crazy. Sounds like you want to say something else about China. 
Yeah, just one more thing about China. I, I don't I don't think that the leaders over there are doing this to hurt the people, right? They, they're doing this for another reason. And so we have to dig in and find out what could be that other reason. And most likely, it's some sort of political back and forth. Maybe there's some power um, struggles between the top few people in the CCP. And when that happens, you know, in an authoritarian regime, you have big time trouble. So um, I, I, people need to put it in perspective. I don't think that the CCP are trying to hurt their people, but they're doing this to uh, as a power grab within the party. So yeah, okay. let's, well, yeah. One yeah. last one last thing before we we jump off uh, China, but uh, we have seen like satellite images of all of the boats that are piling up kind of in that Shanghai area and other major ports in China. Let's talk about the supply chain effects of this, you know, and how you're kind of thinking about it. Well, I mean, the Shanghai port is down, their activity is down 80%. So it's not fully closed, but it is down 80%. It was already falling. It's been falling for several years, not just COVID, but before COVID, their kind of uh, uh, traffic there had been declining. So this is just kind of a uh, continuation of that or an exacerbation of that trend. Supply chains, I think, are, yeah, they're going to have uh, an effect on price. But like I've said in, in the past, that the um, supply chains are, were already thinking about moving. And yes, this might be a very short and uh, deep kind of effect on the supply chains, but then they will move and they will build stronger supply chains elsewhere, probably shorter supply chains. You'll see onshoring and friendshoring, like Powell uh, was saying. And so um, that's, that's how I'm viewing the supply chain. I don't have anything insightful really to say specifically at this time, but it is, um, that's how I'm looking at the situation. All right, let's talk Bitcoin price. What's your analysis? I'm curious if you want to bring a chart up. Yeah, let's go to slide six here. And this is the hash rate. And I, I put this on my newsletter all the time because I, I don't view hash rate as a leading indicator, right? Um, it's not that if hash rate goes up, then the Bitcoin price has to go up. But I view it as if the hash rate is rising, that is a confirmation of the price level. So if the if there was something hidden in the like in the market or in the industry somewhere where there was going to be a massive sell-off or massive correction, we would see that confirmation in that the the hash rate is not going up. Right. So that's how I kind of view hash rate is uh, the the rate or the direction of hash rate uh, is actually a conf, uh, conf, confirming the price level. I hope I spit that out correctly. What are your thoughts on the recent all-time high hash rate? No, I mean, it's, it's absolutely a, uh, a lagging indicator, um, but it also, it kind of smooths out noise too, because there's a lot of noise around daily trading. So if you kind of take a zoomed out view of hash rate, I feel like that is the true kind of signal because ultimately Bitcoin is priced in whatever it takes to mine it at the time. So like that's the true price of Bitcoin at any given time is whatever it takes to, to mine it. And uh, so if you smooth that out and you kind of just look at it over time, that's kind of like the price of Bitcoin in terms of how I view it from just a pure value perspective. Um, but yeah, it's absolutely la a lagging indicator because it takes longer to kind of forecast and build out and make orders around uh, mining data centers uh, than it takes for the Bitcoin price to go up and down. So if the Bitcoin price was really up last year, which it was last fall, 
maybe you are making some very bullish and aggressive orders. Uh, and those orders are just starting to land right now. And you're just starting to maybe potentially, if you were really aggressive, are plugging in those machines, you know, so that creates a lag. So uh, we might see hash rate continue to go up for a while. So, and there's this metric called hash price and hash price going up. So the, how, how expensive it is to, to actually mine a Bitcoin um, that, that price is going to go up while the price of Bitcoin is going down. So uh, that is, it's going to be really interesting to see this dynamic. It pretty much plays out every bull to bear cycle. Um, but again, uh, we, we never know what's going to happen. You know, these miners could get squeezed or maybe the Fed pivots and then Bitcoin just rips upwards like uh, Ansel is predicting here. And then the miners are saved. So who knows? But there is a lot of dynamics here. But it is really interesting uh, to see the cross section of Bitcoin price going down and uh, miners continuing to get plugged in and uh, hash rate screaming upwards. Hash rate is the result of long term production uh, process, right? So it's not just getting a miner, plugging it in, and starting to mine Bitcoin. Most of these big operations now, they're planning two, three, four years out. And so they are running the numbers. And when they, when they uh, raise money for these new projects, the investors are also running the numbers and, and fact-checking and back-checking and seeing if the predictions um, have played out in the past. So um, it's, a, yeah, mining is a lagging indicator, but it involves so much more. And as the hash rate is rising, that's why I say if the hash rate is rising, that means the industry is healthy and Bitcoin is priced approximately correctly. Not that Bitcoin is going to go up 5% today or 10% uh, over the next week, but that this kind of general area, say between 30,000 and 60,000, that's a general correct pricing for Bitcoin at this time. Um, if the hash rate were dropping, then you could say, okay, well, this is there's something wrong with the industry, uh, something wrong with projections here, and maybe this isn't properly priced. Does that make sense? Totally. So do you see hash rate? I mean, if hash rate slows down in its pace, that, that doesn't necessarily mean unhealthy. But if hash rate actually uh, starts to decline, that, that kind of indicates lack of health. Um, would you say that that uh, is an accurate illustration of it? Yeah. what you just yeah. said? Yeah, because, uh, you know, Increasing in increases in hash rate are the result of long-term projections. So if there is no increasing hash rate, then long-term projections have been somewhat stagnant, right? And so that is what I'm basing that on. Should we go roll into some of these other charts? Yeah, let's do it. But yeah, I mean, again, uh, I think that hash rate is the most important metric to watch. It, there's so much signal there, and there's a lot of other derivative uh, indicators that are coming out of it. So uh, we're going to continue Absolutely. to track this and uh, to all the listeners out there, go follow the, 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 all the guys that are, you know, pulling up great data, hash rate index is something that, you know, comes to mind, but great data on, uh, on, you know, Bitcoin hash rate metrics. Absolutely. Okay. So going to number eight, can we go to slide number eight? This is the monthly chart uh, with the RSI. And I, I'm, I like RSI. It, a lot of people think it's a, you know, a silly indicator, but RSI is the basis for so many other derivative indicators. And so it's RSI is really baked into the cake for a lot of things other than maybe moving averages, RSI is like the basics. And uh, so if, if you get a signal from RSI, it's usually going to be pretty decent, but this is a monthly chart and it's just showing 
uh, that RSI is at the same level that it was back during the uh, Corona crash in March of 20. Yep, it's the monthly chart up. Okay. Yeah, so that's uh, the monthly chart, and you can see it's dipping down below the mid line. So it is in the bearish kind of half of the range. But every time it dips below 50 on the monthly RSI is pretty much the bottom of the bear market. If you go to the next slide then, uh, slide number nine, this is a weekly with the weekly RSI. And I'm just showing here that it is the lowest that it's been since once again, the Corona crash. And that was uh, uh, not oversold technically. It wasn't below 30 on the RSI, but that is the lowest that it's been in years. And right now on the weekly, we are there too. So these two indicators, monthly and weekly RSI tells me that we're in the general area for uh, a bottom for a bounce. Moving on to slide number 10. Christian, just stop me whenever you want. Uh, this is the fear and greed index. And it, it hit a, it has, it takes into account a lot of different market sentiment, uh, market data points, including um, investor sentiment. And you can see this is down at a 10. If you go to slide number 11, the next one is a chart of the history of this metric. And it is, you know, right down there at the bottom. The last time that it has been lower than it is today, uh, was back during, again, the Corona crash. So, and it was just marginally lower at eight. Uh, 10 seems to be the bottom on a lot of this fear and greed index stuff over time. And so uh, once again, this is another metric to saying we're close to a bottom. And I want to tie this back into all of the Fed stuff and the uh, macro situation out there. Um, if Bitcoin is bottoming, you know, then we can say, well, probably the stock market is close to bottoming. Probably some other things are close to bottoming. Probably the Fed is closing, close to reversing. So that's, that's how I'm kind of tying all of my opinions about all these kind of seemingly diverse uh, market indicators and market, uh, market uh, data points and making a, a cohesive narrative. What do you think about that, Christian? Uh, just a heads up, I don't think we were able to show the, the fear index. Uh, I, I think that maybe that was added a little bit later, but... Um, yeah, I mean, I, again, I agree. I think you need to kind of look at all of the all of the different kind of metrics, uh, you know, together and and kind of back test them to uh, paint a picture if you're trying to forecast or get even get a feel of like where Bitcoin is from a historical perspective. My favorite indicator is the most simple indicator. That's the 200 day moving average. So um, we're way below that right now. So um, that's definitely something to uh, to keep an eye on, and I think it's definitely a buy time. Well, we never know what the future is going to be, but we know that this is historically cheap time uh, to acquire Bitcoin in terms of you know uh, its relationship to 200-day moving average. I'm curious if you can kind of explain a little bit more, and maybe Chris, you can bring up like the weekly or monthly RSI chart again, but just explain like what RSI is actually measuring and and uh, why you find that to be significant. RSI stands for Relative Strength Index, and it is a, a measurement of not only direction. So on a green candle, uh, it takes direction and volume into account and moves that uh, line within a range from zero to 100. 30 is oversold. That means it's been going down a lot recently with volume. And 70 is overbought. That means it's gone up a lot on volume. So as that moves around, you can get an idea of what is the overall um, condition of the market. Has it been the result of a huge FOMO move? Then it will be overbought. If it's a result of panic, then it will usually be oversold, especially on the monthly chart. 
So monthly, you know, it takes a lot to move the monthly chart. Bitcoin is very volatile and monthly barely gets below 50. So um, I think that's a pretty solid indicator of where the market is. Now, also mixing that with the hash rate. So we are at the bottom of a monthly RSI reading, but hash rate continues to go up and it's at all time highs. So see how hash rate can actually help you evaluate. Is this really a bottom or what? So the hash rate is telling you that this is this price is fair that there is nothing coming like a, a repricing event lower for Bitcoin that this is a bottom and it's probably going to bounce around this area give or take. So you're saying that the fact that hash rate continues to climb despite RSI or yeah despite RSI and relative strength being very low or historically low that that is is a reason to call for a bottom in the price. Yeah, uh, that's how I'm interpreting it. Yeah, I know Q has been pointing out uh, 28k as support, um, historical support. Q, do you want to kind of talk about that and, and what you're looking at that? Uh, yeah, I essentially I believe the number right now is pretty much since we broke above 28,000 in January of 2021, we have seen the price of Bitcoin go down to test this level eight separate times. And in traditional stocks and technical analysis, that would be a sign that because we are coming down to test this price, this is a level of support that shows that buyers are interested in coming in at this price and bidding the price of this asset, Bitcoin specifically, higher and boosting the price from there. Um, there is a rule of polarity, which is essentially an area of support. Once it's broken and once we go below that, that's going to become resistance and we're going to have a hard time getting back above that. So based on those traditional sort of technical indicators and technical analysis, that's why I'm really treating 28,000 like a really hard four that a lot of personal on-chain metrics and personal beliefs are going to get thrown out the door. Um, but again, like that's not necessarily what everyone believes. I know that I'm trying to read tea leaves a little bit there. Yeah. Um, I think, I think 28,000 is a, a solid support level, but um, I look at things like where has the volume been with per price? It's called volume by price. And I don't have it to pull up right now, but um, instead of seeing a volume indicator on the bottom of the charts, you know, you guys are probably familiar with the volume bars. Uh, the volume bars are actually on the side of the chart and they go up with the price. And so at, at each level of price, it's how much volume has taken place in that at that price. And right now we are in a huge bulge of support on the chart it actually stops right around twenty-eight thousand. so um if we fall below that um you know we we don't have any more previous buying and selling that was happened uh, below twenty-eight thousand. so that could be a precipitous fall if we make it down that low um i don't think it's going there but uh it's it's very possible and so i'm genuinely curious like i I use RSI in a very different way. I, I use the one that Investor Business Daily introduced, which essentially measures that individual stock against the S&P 500. I'm curious if there are other oscillators that you're paying attention to right now that are either confirming with what you are seeing with the RSI you shared with us or that are actually like going the other way or signaling something different. Uh, going the other way, well, one of the one of the indicators I use is the Ichimoku cloud, and that's more technical. 
Um, so I, I can't go through it right now, but it is be, it is extremely bearish on pretty much all timeframes. Uh, there is some hope with a, a bullish twist in the cloud, which I, I don't, I can't go into uh, explaining exactly what that means, but it's the bullish type of indicator within the Ichimoku cloud. And there is a possibility that price can go up there. But um, yeah, some of the indicators that I look at are bearish, but that's what you would expect. A lot of indicators will look extremely bearish before they bounce, right? They look, they look the most bearish that they can get at the time of the bounce. And that's what a bottom is. A bottom is the most bearish time. Any other questions on indicators? The, the Ichimoku crowd, cr uh, cloud is like the opposite of the 200-day moving average. You know, I look yeah. at that and I'm just completely and utterly confused. So uh, I like to keep it stupid simple and uh, I like to just stack stats, especially uh, when things are extremely cheap. So, um, you know, always be stacking. You know, I, I like to have a little bit of dry powder at all times, but that's just me. I don't know. I don't know. I don't have much else to add to that. I like to keep it stupid simple. I mean, curious, P, Chris, what do you, how do y'all like try to, you know, interpret the market, at least decide, like, are things cheap? Are things overheated? Like, I, I feel like, you know, a lot of Bitcoiners say don't think about it, but I think pretty much all of them do some sort of like mental analysis. Yeah. I mean, I will admit, I, I used to build like options trading bots on equities. I used to have all sorts of metrics in place and, uh, at this point, my strategy is generally, uh, I DCA every paycheck. I also DCA every day, a much smaller amount. Whenever it drops more than 5%, I'm like time to back the truck up. So down 10%, I'm like time to back the, the second truck up, but that's my only metric. <laughs> I'm a simple man. Yeah. Uh, so me and you the same page. Yeah. Chris. Oh. Orange coin, good. Just buy every day. That's what I do. I, I don't have any metrics for buying. I mean, I like buying at this price versus buying at 60K, and I'm just going to keep doing that. So how about not not even related to your buying, but just like your evaluation? You look at things, you're like, hmm, it's pretty heated right now. Or wow, like oh, y'all are too bearish. Like, like, I feel like everyone's kind of like has their own way of kind of analyzing what's happening. You know, even the technical guys like Shinobi, they're on our our spaces last night bragging about how they were right about the price. You know, who knows if they were trading it or not, but you know, I think everyone's kind of doing that some analysis. Yeah. One thing I will say there is we're in this interesting moment in time, which let's be real. I feel like the majority of civilizations, human civilizations have been in the majority of time, right? Cause there's always a market somewhere, whether it's like we're trading horse saddles or whatever it is. Um, whereas right, we're right now, I, the, the question I find myself asking more than is the Bitcoin price high or low. I view Bitcoin as uh, this pristine asset. So like I want as much of it as possible, but it's not as simple as that as you just pointed out, because it's like, well, maybe I can get more of it uh, given this, like, you know, the best shit coin, the U S dollar that I have. And, you know, for trying to figure it out. The problem for me is always the U S dollar is just plummeting in in value as more and more and more is printed and so the calculus that i'm trying to do in my head is less like what is the bitcoin price going to be it's like how shitty is the us dollar at this moment and do i think it's going to get shittier faster than the bitcoin price you know than the ratio of the two is going to change truly like that's kind of how i i find myself trying to figure it out i don't have a metric but i just think uh that's the only way i know how to approach it that's the thing in, in see measuring how shitty the dollar is and how shitty it will become. That's a part where I think Bitcoiners actually are not very good at. And like, totally we, we talk about that a lot on this show is like, 
you know, I don't know how to measure that. And, you know, I think, you know, Ansel has a lot of criticisms on like what the mainstream counter narrative is on how to measure that is too. Yeah, but uh, the dollar, even though it's dominant, uh, does is not the only currency, right? So if the, the euro is crappy, which it has been and has been losing value relative to the dollar, uh, that's going to affect the price of Bitcoin too, because a lot of people in Europe buy Bitcoin. Same with the rupee or the yen. And so, yeah, it's 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 very hard to evaluate all of that. But um, one thing I would say the dollar is good at is measuring the stress in the global financial system. And so, um, that's how I concentrate. I why I concentrate on the dollar so much because it's a, a measure of that. Um, Bitcoin's demand to me is relatively stable that there's going to be, you know, a certain amount of people that find Bitcoin every month or every year that are going to be able to buy a certain amount all the time. And that, that's one reason why big buyers are exciting because they bring, you know, a unusual big stimulus into the Bitcoin price. The dollar for me is more about the stress in the, in the system. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it's, it's something that I used that CK turned me on to was the mayor multiple. And um, I, I look at that from time to time. We have the benefit of having Dan, uh, Sam and Dylan in-house. So they give great analysis from Bitcoin Magazine Pro. Uh, so I listen to them. Uh, there's a lot of good, other good macro people in the space, but those are kind of people that I have the luxury of talking to and seeing them. Obviously, they're coming on tomorrow for Bitcoin Magazine Pro, or, um, or actually, we've got other people coming on or... Uh, Q, Q shooting his head. All right, we'll figure it out for tomorrow. But uh, yeah, I'll send it back over to CK or Ansel. Yeah, I mean, again, there's there's a lot of uh, good analysts out there. I'm kind of curious, Ansel, is it fair to say that we are now in a bear market? I feel like a lot of Bitcoiners have now, you know, at one point there was kind of this stage where no one would admit it and they're like, we're so going up or whatever, there's still a chance. And now it seems like everyone's like, you know, even, you know, happy to say it's a bear market. I'm kind of curious what your take is on that. I think it's possible, uh, but I'm more in the camp where the four-year cycle is not as powerful anymore. And so I don't know if we're going to have these measured bear markets and bull markets like we've had in the past. So um, I think we could be maybe starting or, or bottoming in a bear market, uh, but we could also be just ready for the, a uh, rally, uh, and which is actually where I fall. Uh, I fall on that we are just on the precipice of turning around, just like we were at the bottom of the bear market, say at the Corona crash. Uh, that's about where we're at right now. So, wow, we needed you on the Twitter spaces last night because people were so bearish. You know, people were like, it's a bear market, it's over. Well, you would have been the contrarian take. Well, that tells me that everyone's on one side of the boat. And when everyone's on one side of the boat, they get wrecked. So um, I, I would say that the, yeah, the contrarian view definitely is that we are starting a bull market. Uh, so it just makes me more confident in my, my uh, prescription there. You. And ask, I'm going to ask the question that CK asked last night on the spaces to you, Ansel, um, which is uh -oh. what do you think is going to cause the most pain in the market? Because that seems like the most likely place that the market is headed. Most pain to Bitcoiners? But like in the market in general, and I, I would love your answer. And then I'll share, I think something but, that I think is shaping my let, answer. Here. Let's say most pain to Bitcoiners. I think that's interesting because Bitcoiners love to think how they're kind of immune from market cycles. I'm, I'm curious what brings the most pain to Bitcoiners. Um, missing out. Uh, people aren't going to, people aren't going to buy now 
uh, you know, back up the truck when it's down 50% because they think it's going to fall further and then they miss, they miss the opportunity. And then they don't buy when it's up 25% because, oh no, we're in a bear market. We're not, you know, we're not going to buy now because it's going to go even lower. And then they just don't buy and it keeps creeping up. So um, I think that's not necessarily is going to cause a lot of pain because holders don't really feel too much pain, but you um, you're going to miss the opportunity. And a lot of people are going to, I think, be way too bearish when it's at the bottom. Obviously that's how all bear markets are. And so people are going to be way too bearish at the bottom and they're going to miss the opportunity to buy the dip. Now on a kind of global macro um, level, uh, I think that the pain is not going to come evenly you know, in different geographic places, and it's not going to come evenly to different currencies. So like the euro, those people are going to experience mostly pain uh, from the fall of the euro and the collapse of their economy, same maybe in Japan or China. Uh, so I think the pain will be not geographically distributed uh, evenly. What do you think about that? So I'm dealing with a puking dog at the same time. Um, I'm genuinely <laughs> curious though, like this correlation, the NASDAQ, I'm not going to take a victory lap. I will say that I have felt like the correlation, the NASDAQ with Bitcoin prices made me feel really confident about maybe making some decisions like, Hey, let me go lighter on my DCA. And right now, I think there's going to be an opportunity later. Um, and I don't see that ending anytime soon as someone who like, enjoys looking at just the markets in general if i see the markets sending me signals that there's still more downside to go there that's kind of what's driving my belief that even though all of us in this echo chamber think bitcoin's price is in a bear market that we all in the bitcoin ecosystem think like this is it this is the bottom the bottom's in we're good or whatever we may believe i think because of that secondary driver that's really driven price for the last six months, I have a hard time stomaching the idea that we're going to separate. I'm curious what you think could be a catalyst to that separation. A catalyst to Bitcoin decoupling from uh, the fangs and, and the NASDAQ and stuff. I don't know. I don't think it's going to decouple. I, I'm not a bear on the U.S. stock market either. I think Bitcoin, like I was just, I'm, I was doing a little bit of research yesterday about uh, comparing Bitcoin to fangs, because if you compare Bitcoin to the entire stock market, yeah, it's fairly correlated. But when you compare it to just the top, like five, six stocks, it's extremely correlated. So um, I don't think that the correlation is going to end anytime soon, but I'm not a bear on the stock market either. I'm a bull. And Bitcoin is going to go up 400% when the rest of the stock market goes up, uh, you know, 50%. So uh, that's, that's how I'm looking at it. Long-term, it will separate, obviously, because Bitcoin will become sounder money, uh, or it is sound money, but it'll become more stable um, medium of exchange in the future. And so then, it, yeah, it will decouple far into the future. But during this um, rapid adoption phase, S-curve technology adoption phase, then it's going to act like a you know, S-curve technology adoption phase. I, I also did the same thing. So um, we, we, are, we are taking sets off the market at the bottom. Ansel, you might have a moment right now to be, become legendary. If you are right oh boy. today at the bottom and you call it on this show, we will be bringing it back up. I think like this is your moment again to cement your legacy. 
you have quite an incredible legacy in the Bitcoin space. You've made many incredible calls. I love listening to your podcast, Bitcoin and Markets. I love that you come on here every week to, to drop some macro knowledge. Um, but yeah, I mean, hey, people are calling bear right now. People are scared. That's why I was asking what's the way of most pain, because I think counter to what the consensus is, is what the market will typically do. And uh, Ansel, you're, you're, you're calling everyone out. You're saying it's not a bear market. You're saying the Fed is going to pivot and equities, stocks, bonds, Bitcoin, they're going to rip upwards. Well, they have to pivot eventually. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I am, I'm saying we're in the neighborhood of the bottom. I don't think it's going to go much lower, but I'm a perpetual bull. So of course I have my bias like everybody else. Um, but I, Bitcoin didn't rip up, you know, th this, this cycle up to 69,000 or whatever we hit. Um, that wasn't the typical 20 X run for Bitcoin. It was what a six X run or three X run. And so the, the dip will be less because we got less FOMO on the top side and we're going to have less panic on the bottom side. And that's in addition to, yeah, the macro arguments of the fed is going to reverse and all the people that um, believe in the mythology of the Fed, they're going to say, oh my God, I got to buy, 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 buy. And the markets are going to scream up. So we're in the neighborhood of the bottom. And so I just want to point out that um, it was actually a double top at 69K. Just think that's an important detail. Yeah, double top too. So um, it had enough to go up there twice. Uh, that, that's how I would interpret it. it. It wasn't a blow off top. So yeah, um, I could be wrong, but I hope I'm not because you you to, just told me I'm going on record and for the whole world here right here. <laughs> yeah, that would be legendary. Ansel, did you not realize you're technically under oath the moment you come on camera for this for this podcast? Once it's on the internet, it's there forever, right? Everything you say here can and will be used against you in a court of law. All right, y'all. Ansel, where can people learn more about your work? Um, you know, this is a great show. Thanks for the rip. Yeah, BitcoinAndMarkets.com is my website. I do a, another podcast there and also a weekly newsletter. I'm trying to grow that newsletter. So if you are subscribed to it, please uh, share it around to people. So uh, BitcoinAndMarkets.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Ansel Linder. All right, y'all. You can find me at CK underscore Snarks. We do this every single week. And uh, we, we also do a lot of Twitter spaces. So uh, these guys are doing a great job with Bitcoin Magazine Live. And uh, yeah, I'll hand it back to Q and Chris. Thanks, guys. Peace.